Hey everyone, welcome to episode 5 of Dobbylicious Podcast, which is simply titled Diagonally. I'm Michael John, your host, and I just wanted to start by giving a shout out to the new listeners of the podcast, which I was really excited to see in the podcast statistics. So I've had a flurry of downloads from around America. Just to list a few locations, we've had Lakewood, California, Seattle, Washington, Centennial, Colorado, Greenberg, New York, Hugh, Ohio, Indiana, Dallas, Texas, Atlanta, Georgia, also Clichy, Ile-de-France, somewhere in France, excuse my accents there. So obviously, very exciting for me to see people dotted around the world downloading the podcast. And it would be really cool if anybody wants to get in touch to send me a message via the Facebook page or on social media. It would just be exciting to see where people are from. And I was trying to think of ways I could spread the word about this podcast. And I remembered a quote from Albus Dumbledore from the films, Half-Blood Prince, not the book, where Dumbledore starts the school year with a speech where he reminds the students that Voldemort's and the Dark Force's greatest weapon is you. And I thought, you know what? My greatest weapon, my most valuable endorsement is you, the listeners. So if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast and you have a friend who you think might also enjoy listening, by all means, please let them know and let's see if they like it. Spread the word and let's try and make other people's lives dobbylicious. So the chapter begins with Harry waking up and realising that the night before actually happened. Hagrid smashed down the front door, he gave Harry a birthday cake, and gave Dudley a pig's tail. Obviously, Harry is delighted that this was real, and he wakes up to an owl tapping on the window, which comes in, and Hagrid tells Harry to give the owl some money. So Harry starts frantically going through Hagrid's coat pockets, trying to find wizarding money, dealing in a foreign currency, and trying to work out what's what. And I definitely felt there was some stress for Harry doing this impromptu deal, frantically trying to do it quickly, not wanting to disappoint the owl, disappoint Hagrid. It kind of reminded me of the pressure of being on holiday and dealing in a foreign currency sometimes. I actually have a friend who told me that he paid 20 euros for an ice cream in Rome due to, uh, I don't know, pressure on tourists. So luckily this owl is not trying to rip off any tourists, or Harry in this case. So Harry pays the owl, and then Hagrid says, okay, we'd better set off to get your school things, let's have some breakfast first. And he says he wouldn't mind some of that birthday cake from last night and some leftover sausages. And again, I think this is another example of Hagrid's character being perpetually drunk, because think about it. You go to a birthday party, maybe have too much to drink, wake up the next morning feeling hungover. What will you have for breakfast? How about a tasty combination of leftover sausages and birthday cake as a hangover cure, not really as a typical breakfast option? So I think this kind of hangover menu supports the idea, which I find quite funny, that Hagrid's character seems to be perpetually tipsy. So Hagrid and Harry set off from the hut, and they're going by boat, even though the previous day Hagrid says he flew in. And I was wondering what he actually could have flown on, because he's a half-giant, so it wasn't a broomstick. Sirius's motorbike would be loud and would still be there. And I think Hagrid's too big for a Thestral, if I remember correctly, so any thoughts on that would be welcome. But anyway, they make their way to London and they get onto public transport, of all things. So I think that gives Joe Rowling a fair bit of leeway 
to not arouse any muggle suspicion because I can tell you, being a Londoner, that people who commute here will definitely have seen stranger things than a half-giant trying to find his way onto the tube. I remember possibly one of the most odd things I saw when commuting was a guy who looks like he was smiling at me, but it was this weird toothy grin, and then he pulled out a stick from a bag and started rubbing his teeth with it. And I'm not talking about a toothpick-sized stick, I'm talking about a Harry Potter wand-sized stick that he was rubbing his teeth with. I've got no idea what was going on, it was really odd, I tried not to look too much. And the other thing that comes to mind off the bat is commuting in the morning and I had I had some headphones in, I was listening to music and I suddenly started hearing this buzzing and I was thinking maybe there's something wrong with my headphones and I turned to my left and literally the guy sitting next to me was having a shave on public transport in broad daylight. So you have some unusual experiences commuting in London. So anyway, Hagrid eventually finds the Leaky Cauldron which is the sort of portal from the Muggle world to Diagon Alley in the Wizarding world and apparently the Leaky Cauldron is on Charing Cross Road in London. On wizardingworld.com, Joe Rowling wrote that she put the Leaky Cauldron there because Charing Cross Road is famous for its bookshops, so she wanted it to be the place where those in the know can go to enter a different world. And I think that's very much a major idea in this chapter, Harry's first proper entry into the magical world. And when Harry looks at his list of things he needs, he asks Hagrid if he can actually find all this stuff in London, and Hagrid replies, if you know where to go, which may be a reference to this idea Joe Rowling has that bookshops in Charing Cross Road were for people who were in the know. So just as an aside, in terms of things which are on Harry's list, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them by Newt Scamander. And I was listening to The Order of the Phoenix while doing some work the other day, and Harry is looking some stuff up in Fantastic Beasts, so that book seems to last a long time at Hogwarts. A core textbook, if you will. Also, this thought just randomly entered my, entered my head that if you were a rapper, you could do a Fantastic Beats and where to find them. <laughs> anyway, Hagrid takes Harry to the Leaky Cauldron, and they meet a variety of wizards, all of whom recognise Harry. And obviously we see this in the film... Harry mainly meets Professor Quirrell and a couple of others, whereas in the books, in my mind at least, it's more of a thing. It's more of a big scene where everyone in the pub is buzzing around Harry trying to meet him. He shakes everyone's hands. I thought they could have made more of a big deal out of that in the movie. But I was also wondering if any celebrities who have read the book can associate with what Harry experiences in terms of being recognised by everyone and meeting people who probably have a kind of expectation about what they'll be like or be able to do. It reminded me of a play I went to see in London with a good friend, and the play was called Peter and Alice, which was about the real-life meeting of the girl who was the inspiration for the character Alice in Alice in Wonderland, and the boy who was the inspiration for the character Peter in Peter Pan. And the whole play was just a conversation between two characters about what life has been like, being seen as a different character before being seen as themselves. Just a fun fact, they were actually really famous actors in this play. Alice was played by Judi Dench and Peter was played by Ben Whishaw. I thought they were awesome on stage. Obviously, there's the line in the first chapter where McGonagall says, every child in our world will know his name, referring to Harry. And that obviously becomes true for Harry Potter in the books, and also for fans reading the books, everyone knows Harry Potter all around the world. 
Anyway, so Harry's first port of call in Diagon Alley is Gringotts Bank, and we learn that you'd be mad to break into Gringotts, which is described by Hagrid as, quote, the safest place in the world for anything you want to keep safe, except maybe Hogwarts, and that you'd be mad to try and rob Gringotts, which is run by goblins and obviously guarded by dragons. So there's some foreshadowing there of what's about to happen in the book, but also what happens in The Deathly Hallows when Voldemort keeps a horcrux in Gringotts and also at Hogwarts, and the trio have to break into Gringotts where there is obviously a dragon. And I just thought after the Battle of Hogwarts, if the trio were recounting events in a pub or something and telling Hagrid about where they found the horcruxes, Hagrid would be like, I could have told you where they were. So I've actually been to the film location of Gringotts Bank, I was invited to a gig by a friend of mine which was at Australia House in central London and from what I understand it's the Australian embassy and shortly before we got there he said oh by the way this is apparently where they filmed the Gringotts scenes in the Harry Potter movies so I was like what and yeah okay there were no dragons or goblins in there but it's very grand on the inside it's one of those places which would be cool to see the inside of on one of those National Architecture Days, where they open up buildings to the public which are normally closed. It's very impressive on the inside, and apparently it's the oldest Australian diplomatic mission and the longest continually occupied foreign mission in London. So that was a cool experience, although I wish on entering Australia House, because obviously it's the Australian Embassy, so they have security, and I wish when they asked what I was visiting for, I'd said official Hogwarts business or top secret Hogwarts business, but I guess they get that joke a lot. <laughs> um, but we watched a small orchestra play there, which was great, and definitely a huge pro of having friends with different interests to yours, because otherwise I never would have heard about that gig. So Harry goes into Gringotts and he meets Griphook, who takes him down to his vault, which is another plug-in because Griphook plays an important part in book seven. And I think it's just so cool that Joe Rowling has mapped out this story in so much detail from an early stage. So Harry goes down to his vault with Hagrid, and we hear what's probably the cheesiest joke of the whole Harry Potter series, where they see stalactites and stalagmites, and Harry says he can't remember the difference between the two. And Hagrid goes, oh, one has an M in it. And I just thought, Hagrid's paternal instincts for Harry are even extending to dad jokes in this chapter. And just in case you were wondering, I looked it up and stalactites grow from the ceiling of a cave and stalagmites grow from the floor of a cave. So Harry and Hagrid are pretty deep underground in London, which made me think of underground places in London you can go. And I thought of two places. One is this shop called Cyberdog in Camden, which is extremely cool and also pretty weird when you go in. But it's just one of those one-of-a-kind shops which I would recommend people visiting if you do come to London. It's a shop which sells very niche rave outfits if you want to go to a rave party. But also these really random products. So, for example, I bought my brother a shower head which has lights in it so it will actually colour the water and you can have a shower in fluorescent blue or green coloured water. But unfortunately, in order for you to actually see the light, you have to have a shower in the dark. So that product does have its flaws, and probably supports the idea that my brother has, which is that I buy terrible presents. But anyway, Cyberdog is almost literally a rave party in a shop, and they have a DJ playing rave music, so the atmosphere is pumping. They've got dancers on the balconies, high up on the walls, and when you're done walking around, you feel ready to party, even though it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. 
That said, I'd recommend going if you are of age. It's not an entirely PG shop. So there are also quite a few bars in London which claim to be speakeasy secret bars and I always think you know when you found a good secret bar when you look up the address on Google and you go there and you still can't see the bar. I think that's when you're onto a winner. There's one place which is a converted Victorian public toilet so it's amazing what you can turn into a selling point these days. I actually went to that one because it was near where I used to work and I have to say the vibe was was a bit strange. It was really dark, everyone was wearing black and it was only lit by candlelight and the tiles on the walls were dark so it seemed like a kind of vampire congregation was going on. The tiles might have actually been dark green so I'm thinking, you know, Slytherin common room at night vibe. But maybe it was just that night, I don't know. Anyway, I digress. So in this chapter we get to know Hagrid a bit better. He's so proud to be on Hogwarts business for Dumbledore, and we've already seen him defend Dumbledore to the hilt in previous chapters. Hagrid actually announces that he's on top-secret Hogwarts business, and okay, the book is for children, so I guess some aspects of his character are exaggerated, but even if it is Harry Potter, you'd think Hagrid would just tell him to wait in the lobby while he goes to fetch this top-secret item, but instead Hagrid goes, oh Harry, why don't you just... Come along with me, we'll get our stuff together while I collect this top secret thing. But I guess this lack of secrecy is a feature of Hagrid's character, and Dumbledore knows this. And this tendency of Hagrid's makes the other characters suspicious of him in Book 7 when Mad-Eye Moody dies, because they think Hagrid has accidentally given away their top secret plan. And it did make me think, why did Dumbledore ask Hagrid to get the Philosopher's Stone for him? And I always got the impression that Dumbledore chose a certain character to do things based on whether or not he thinks their heart is in the right place, or it's more based on the content of their character rather than whether or not they're excellent in terms of skill. So maybe a more skilled wizard would try to use the Philosopher's Stone, for example, and that would be related to their character rather than their magical ability. Or another example that I thought of is in The Half-Blood Prince, when Dumbledore tracks down the Ring Horcrux, He later reveals that he got carried away with excitement and thought he had the Resurrection Stone, so he put it on without thinking it could be cursed. And if Dumbledore's character was different, and the Three Hallows had not been important to him when he was young, he wouldn't have put on the ring, which is completely related to his character rather than his magical ability. So that's just a thought, but obviously if his character was different, he wouldn't be Dumbledore. But I just thought it was an example of how what you're interested in would affect your choices in key moments. So Harry goes to his vault, he gets his gold, he goes to vault 713 and sees this secret item in a little brown bag. And then they leave Gringotts and we get to a huge moment in the chapter when Harry goes to Madame Malkin's to buy his Hogwarts robes because he meets Draco Malfoy. What a significant encounter this turns out to be. So Hagrid goes off to get a drink in the Leaky Cauldron because he's a bit shaken by the cart ride in Gringotts and he's also perpetually tipsy. This is uh, Harry's first time on his own in Diagon Alley, and I think we get an idea that this kid he meets in Madame Malkins is going to play a role in the book because he's the only character we meet who is Harry's age other than Dudley, at this stage at least. So Harry's relationship with Draco obviously turns into a good versus evil battle as the book series goes on. And according to the Wizarding World website, Malfoy is named after a constellation of the dragon, but his wand core is unicorn hair, which is a purely good animal. 
So that combination is meant to reflect the fact that Draco has a dark side, but also the conflict he faces in the later books when he isn't fully committed to the Death Eater's cause and he's questioning whether what he's doing is good. And apparently, growing up, Draco mainly hung out with the children of his dad's old Death Eater friends, and there's a theory going around that Harry Potter survived Lord Voldemort's attack because Harry himself is a powerful dark wizard. And in this scene of the book, Malfoy doesn't know he's standing next to Harry Potter, but when he realises later on, when they're both on the Hogwarts Express, he offers Harry a handshake in the hope they'll be friends and that his family will know the next great dark wizard. But he soon realises, obviously, that Harry isn't a great dark wizard, and much of his feelings towards Harry after that apparently are based on jealousy because Harry's more famous, he's better at flying, etc., and I saw a Joe Rowling interview where she says that some children have told her that they know a Draco-type character at school. And I wonder what other people actually think of him. So to me, Draco is someone who doesn't feel shame like a normal person. So for example, when he resorts to dirty tactics to get the better of Harry either by lying behind his back or maybe trying to cheat in a Quidditch match, he doesn't feel guilty about that he would get the same satisfaction of winning as though he'd won the Quidditch game fairly. He only really cares about the external appearances rather than the actual reality of whether he really is better at Quidditch. And in that sense, Draco always struck me as a character who has no shame, which I think is a weakness. So randomly, I actually saw Tom Felton, who plays Draco Malfoy in the movies, uh, in a bar in London... The bar was called The Jam Tree, although I think it's changed names now, and I remember recognising him and thinking, oh, I won't go and ask for a photo or anything because he probably just wants to have a normal night out with his friends, so I just kind of nudged my friend who was next to me and I said, oh look, that's the guy who plays Draco Malfoy in the Harry Potter films, and my friend was like, are you sure? And I went, yeah, it's definitely him, he's even wearing Slytherin robe. No, obviously, just joking, but I said, yeah, it's definitely him. So my friend then basically just went straight over and asked him for a picture, which... He then posted on Facebook, which was soon followed by likes, comments, glory. You know how it goes. So, so much for trying to leave the guy alone. Sorry, Tom. And we get our first mention of the Hogwarts houses. So Draco says he'll be put in Slytherin and that he would die of shame if he was a Hufflepuff. And when I read that, I immediately thought, OK, I did the test and I'm a Hufflepuff and I'm happy with that. I'll save the Hogwarts house discussion for the chapter where the students get sorted, but it just reminded me of a Joe Rowling interview which made me laugh. Because a child asks her what she says to people who have the shame of being picked for Hufflepuff house. And it's like, come on guys, I think Hufflepuff house is just suffering from bad marketing, so it's not our fault that Helga Hufflepuff's last name reminds you of, you know, Jigglypuff from Pokemon, which tries to sing its enemies to sleep, for goodness sake. It's just bad representation. I think if we look a little bit deeper, we can give Hufflepuff some cool points. But anyway, just sticking to the, what's in this chapter, after Harry gets his school robes, he meets Hagrid again, and he tells him about this encounter he had with Draco Malfoy and about the Hogwarts houses, and Harry's thinking, oh no, I'm going to be picked for Hufflepuff. And Hagrid actually says, well, everyone says Hufflepuff are a load of duffers, but... And he gets cut off. He was about to say what's good about Hufflepuff House and save our image at this critically early stage of the books, but Joe Rowling decided to just leave us out to dry. She had the chance to give us a boost there with a glowing endorsement from Hagrid, who we all love, but instead our image is tainted for the rest of the book series. Anyway, I don't even care. More on this later. 
So then the next big event is Harry going to buy his wand, and en route, Hagrid buys Harry Hedwig, which is a tongue twister. Harry buys ha- Hagrid buys Harry Hedwig. Hag- Har- uh. Harry buy- Hagrid buys Harry Hedwig. Hagrid buys Harry Hedwig. Okay, twice in a row. That's good enough. Anyway, Hedwig is Harry's owl throughout the story and is his link to the magical world during the summer holidays when he's at the Dursleys. And I wonder if it's symbolic that Hagrid, who takes Harry into the magical world, is the one who buys Hedwig for him because she is obviously Harry's link to the magical world throughout his Hogwarts years. And it actually reminded me of an article I read about a parrot which belonged to an English family. And obviously a parrot's party trick is that they can mimic human speech. So this family's parrot flew off and went missing, but then it returned six months later and could speak Spanish, which I just found hilarious. It's obviously been on holiday somewhere. (laughs) So anyway, Harry sees Ollivander's shop, and we're told that the front of the shop is painted with gold writing, and the gold paint is peeling off. I'm thinking maybe the gold paint symbolises that the one shop was a kind of grand business, but the fact it's peeling off shows it's old, it's near the end, because a few years later Ollivander is kidnapped by Voldemort. Or it could just be that Ollivander doesn't really care about the paint job. Another interesting aspect to Harry's visit to Ollivander's is that Ollivander is weird. And I think this is totally overlooked, because we're all so excited about Harry getting a wand, and it's a very memorable moment... But Ollivander talks about Harry like he's an object, and he moves his face to within an inch of Harry's face and then touches Harry's scar. I mean, I get that old people can get away with being less socially savvy, like old ladies pinching your cheeks and saying you're cute, but I thought this was pretty weird behaviour from Ollivander. I get that it's Harry Potter, but touching someone's scar without even knowing them is too far for me. And we're even told that Harry isn't really sure whether or not he likes Ollivander, and I'm not surprised, to be honest. But then Ollivander tells Harry, I sold the wand which gave you that scar. And we're like, ooh, plot twist. And we suddenly forget that Ollivander's been weird, and we go straight into buying a wand. So, okay, Harry goes about getting a wand, which is a fun scene, and I read some of Joe Rowling's comments about wands, so... Apparently, wand length can be related to physical height as well as character, so a wand could be good for a tall wizard or a shorter wizard with a big personality. And the opposite relationship goes for short ones, and the flexibility of the wand apparently relates to the wand owner's willingness to change. So Harry's wand is 11 inches, which seems like a kind of average wand length, like Harry's average height, and he doesn't have a particularly big, boisterous personality, so this seems about right. And his wand is supple, which I thought could be because he has to adapt to all this turmoil he goes through. And then we find his wood is made from holly. And the description sounds like it's it was written to fit Harry's situation. So Hollywood, Hollywood? Hollywood is meant to be good for people who need help overcoming anger, who are engaged in a dangerous quest, and it's notoriously difficult to match with Phoenix Feather. So, apparently, if the Holly and Phoenix match happens, nothing and no one should stand in the wand owner's way, according to wizardingworld.com, and the Phoenix Feather core is described as being capable of the greatest range of magic, which is pretty handy for Harry, and it may act of its own accord. So this basically, I think, is Harry's journey in a nutshell. He's on a dangerous adventure, he has to overcome Voldemort's anger, which he himself can feel, The Phoenix Feather Wand does actually act of its own accord when Voldemort attacks Harry during his escape from Privet Drive at the beginning of Book 7, and the core being difficult to match with the Hollywood 
could symbolise Voldemort's soul in Harry, which obviously doesn't match. And, of course, I did my own test, and I got a 13-inch wand, slightly longer than Harry's, but I'm also taller, I would imagine. I'm 6'2", 6'2". My wand was slightly yielding in flexibility, maybe because I'm a bit stubborn sometimes. I'm a Taurus. Could be why. And I have the same phoenix feather core as Harry, so holla! But mine, my wand is cherry wood, which I like. Cherry trees in bloom are very beautiful, and they make cherries, so that's great. So then cherry wandwood is described as a very rare wandwood. So automatically I'm thinking, hell yeah, I'm special, and also I'm 30 and I need to get a life. Apparently in Japan, students who have wands of cherry wood have special prestige. So obviously I would try and modestly do a semester abroad in Japan. It says that cherry wood often makes a wand which possesses truly lethal power, but it's also described as a wand of strange power. So I don't really know what to make of that. My wand's power is lethal, but strange. The last thing which stood out for me in this chapter is when Harry talks to Hagrid and reveals his vulnerability. Harry opens up to Hagrid, which I think is incredible because Harry hasn't had anyone to talk to his whole life, although earlier in the chapter it says Harry couldn't help but trust Hagrid, which I think is a big deal given the negative relationships Harry has experienced his whole life. Hagrid comes in and becomes this father-protective figure to Harry, one of numerous father figures we see throughout the books. I watched a documentary about Jo Rowling which said she did not have a good relationship with her dad, which might be a reason why we see numerous idealised father figures in the book series, Hagrid being the first we meet, who loves Harry and wants to protect Harry. So Harry confides in Hagrid, saying he's famous for something he doesn't remember, he doesn't know any magic or anything about the magical world, and essentially people are defining Harry by one event, which obviously had a lasting impact, but isn't his only defining or probably formative experience. So it seems like Harry is worried about the external expectations people will have, which I think we all are to a degree. And in this moment of vulnerability, I think Hagrid's advice is simple, but really good, which is, which is something because it's not often you open up to someone and actually get good advice. Hagrid says, it's hard and being singled out is always hard. And it reminded me of this book called The Path Less Travelled or The Road Less Travelled, which I heard about in a speech given by Nick Saban, who's an American football coach. And he says the first line of the book is that life is hard. So even though the book is supposed to be a positive psychology kind of book, the opening sentence is a negative statement. And personally, I think that telling someone that an experience is going to be hard is very helpful because they go in with the right expectation. If you think something will be easy and then you find that it's hard, that can be really demoralizing and take you by surprise. If you have a healthy expectation, on the other hand, that something will be hard and it's going to be challenging, then you can accept it and find ways to manage that experience. And this situation with Hagrid made me think that wisdom and support are not necessarily things which come from being refined or educated. They probably, it probably comes from caring, and I think Hagrid's advice is spot on. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Dobbylicious Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Next episode, we will be revisiting Platform 9 and 3 quarters with Harry, Meet the Weasleys, and we talk about chance encounters and the random coincidences that result in us meeting people who end up being some of our best friends. And I'll also be doing some interviews with my first guests on the podcast, so I am looking forward to that. Until next week, keep it Dobbylicious. Dobbylicious.